When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine. I'm Emily and we're calling this episode, This Might Make You Feel Less Weird. I mean, who knows? I mean, hopefully you're fully engaged in a wonderful holiday, right? You know, it's brilliant spending joyous time immersed in the glorious slipstream of your family dynamics. If so, good for you. If, however, you feel like you're on the brink, near the overwhelm or just unbelievably fucking tired, have we got an episode for you. We gather together some self-preserving thoughts from therapy titans, Julia Samuel, Mandy Saligari and Sam Akbar to talk you down off the emotional cliff. Note, these are highlights, not new recordings. We've been talking recently, Emily and I, and, and, and we've, we've done a couple of riffs on, you know, what being an adult is. And one of it was being an adult is realising that half your family is mentally ill. <laughs> and then what do you do about it? Annabelle makes a joke about you're single-handedly trying to change it because you're going to Battling generations ha- <laughs> of trauma. And it sort of is a joke, but this book proves that it, it isn't a joke. It's really happening. So what if you're a grown-up who's struggling and, and, um, and you've done as much work as you feel you can on your own, what questions do you think you should start with in terms of asking your family of origin about themselves and about what has been happening? I mean, I think the first place to start is to recognise that what you're feeling is normal and that what you're feeling probably didn't start with you. But to look up and to look at the generations before you Because what we know from the research, both behaviourally and epigenetically, so what gets transferred in the womb, is the traumas, the losses, the devastations of previous generations and how we come to terms with them or how we deal with them gets passed down from generation to generation. And those that weren't prepared to feel the pain, that keeps getting on passed down until someone is prepared to feel the pain. You know, so I worked in the book with three and four and sometimes five generations of a family. And that by hearing each other and each telling their stories, rather than having, as you say, your singular story of I'm not coping, you have a collective story with many more pieces of the jigsaw. And you learn about how come you are who you are. And you make sense of it much more. So it's much more... Oh, my goodness, you know, my grandfather had this experience and that's how I come to feel like this. And my mum, how she came to feel like that. And so now I can begin to make sense of it. And once you can begin to make sense of it, you can choose much more what your response is. And then you don't pass down the trauma and the pain to the next generation because you have kind of understood yourself better and so your responses will be different. But I like that the subtitle of your book is how we inherit love and loss because it's like there's the smooth and the rough. So perhaps in doing that investigation into 
transgenerational trauma or whatever it might be or addiction that you might be looking at and seeking answers about you also will be diving deeper into the love completely and that you know one of the premises for all of us is that at any given time as parents we are all doing our best you know no one wants to fuck up their own lives or their children's lives but often it's ignorance that blocks us being able to kind of have a a version of ourselves that is actually more supportive to ourselves and our families. And by having all of these different stories, it kind of informs us and gives us more information from which to to make choices. You know, so one of the, the stories that I'm thinking about is the Rossi family. So they were an Italian family well, she was English, but her husband was Italian, and he died by suicide 40 years before. And the kind of subtext of that is that trauma lives alive and on alert and has no sense of time in our bodies until we take the distress of the trauma out of our amygdala, which is the sort of neural fight, flight or freeze part of the brain, the kind of alarm system. And that that family was still the mum and her three children and the people around them, actually the family around them, still had that trauma alive in their body 40 years later. It's like the long arm of trauma. And by having the conversations with me, the three daughters and their mum, and we only had like six or seven sessions. So this is less than a Netflix series, if you see what I mean. They had conversations they had never, ever had before because it's very hard to have those conversations on your own. Also, families have the kind of conversations that they have, don't they? You know, we're all pattern makers and habit formers. Yeah, I mean, most of the conversations, well, certainly that I had in my childhood and I think most families have, are about everything that doesn't matter and nothing that really matters because we don't know how the hell to talk about it. But with a facilitator like me who is unbiased but very supportive... You can dare to say the things like one of their daughters said to her mum, but mum, I am fed up with you losing it all the time. You're too fragile. We have to walk on eggshells. And this mum, who is the one left looking after her children, who kind of gives her husband a good reputation, is like, what? You you can't criticise me. I've done such a good job. I enabled us to survive and I had to bear the brunt of it. But actually by hearing that they needed to say to her, you did things to us that are injurious to us and that she could take it and that they could then actually talk about their dad and not just pretending that he had a mental illness, but actually he messed up their lives big time and that they were angry with him. And then they had a very reparative, very, I thought, very moving letter that they wrote to him that made me cry when they, when they read it out to me over the screen. Um, So it completely changed their relationship with their story and each other and their mum. And she, she, at one of the last sessions, she said to them, I never asked you how it was for you, children. Because as parents, it's so unbearable to see our children suffer. We kind of don't want to know. We kind of want to turn away. Our instinct is to turn away. But by being able to ask them what they suffered and hearing it, it released it. And that was curative. I mean, we, we talk a lot, don't we? This really unhelpful word, I think, that invades family dynamics is, is the idea of blame. 
So, you know, where parents think, well, don't blame me, or a child thinking, I blame them. And in fact, when you put it like that about the Rossi family, you realise it isn't blame, it's answers, it's logic, it's reasons. But blame is the thing that we're all kind of scared of. Well, blame is like a truncheon that you're bashing somebody on the head with. Like They intentionally did stuff to hurt you and that you're injured from it. And then the person that's been truncheoned has nowhere to go. It's like, if you're blaming me, what can I do? Say sorry isn't enough. But it's much more building trust that we can bear together these things that are often unbearable when we can hear each other. Yeah, what I was going to say, you know, hearing and also in some ways forgiving, acknowledging that people are doing the best with what they what they have. And I mean, I think it's a it's a very difficult thing in families because you get the sense that, you know, well, you should have been there. You should have known how to protect me. And, you know, when one is talking to to one's children and and one says, well, I don't know. And and, and I, I always worry about that, saying I don't know, you know, even when I don't know, because I feel like I should know everything because I should be able to protect them. Well, of course, I can't. But, you know, I can see, you know, generations past, particularly, where they thought, well, the best way to protect is not to tell and not to tell about anything and not allow, for example, you know, children to go to funerals and things like that. You know, it was very much forget the idea and that... On. What you forget don't know isn't going to hurt you isn't going to hurt you exactly and kind of you know so it's all whispers in corridors or whatever and you and it is again to what we were saying about how terrifying that is as a child but also um, but also I mean to interrupt you which yeah. as a therapist that is verboten um, <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm totally thrilled for to be interrupted is that listening to the wisdom of children so the, there were two case studies the Taylors and the Brown and Francis family where the children and young people were the calibrator of change. That when we listened to them, they changed what had been a very stuck narrative, Mm. you know, which is more about blame or just this stuckness that we feel, which blocks the binds of connection and kind of freedom and expansion as a family because we kind of white-knuckle it. But yeah. when we can open up to it, it releases us and it, it can be incredibly empowering. And children have a lot of wisdom yeah. when we listen to them. Well, because at core, they are the ones absorbing everything. So they can see it in a way through a sort of... So they're, well, they're seeing it for the first time. Exactly. The other thing that Emily and I were, t- were saying that we, that we loved about the book was that it shows you that it's possible therapeutically to do different pieces of work. So you may not have to sit. I think people sometimes think about therapy and they think they'll be sitting in a room with the same therapist talking about their childhood for the next 40 years. And that, in fact, you can take, you can get some help on something that you're struggling with. You could then go back in with your father or your sister or your stepchildren, whatever it might be. Look at what's happening around that. That, you, that, it's, a, that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a solace and a place where solutions can be found that's always there for you, but you can, you can move in and out of it. Completely, and like the Wynn family. So Ivo was from a very privileged family and he eventually, although it had been kind of in his mind for a long time, he eventually found out that genetically, um, biologically, his father wasn't his father, which more and more people are finding out now because of me in 23, which didn't exist, you know. I mean, I've heard a lot of people, you know, their siblings have done it and then it's kind of emerged that they aren't biologically, don't have the same parents. And he, you know, he did not want to sort his whole life out and 
the dysfunctional mother who is an alcoholic and all of that. But he did want to sort out the loss he felt that his biological father wasn't his father and that experience there. And he didn't want to mess up his own kids. So we had, I think it was like five sessions. You know, I saw him on his own. I saw him with his mother and his sister, which was quite a session. But she was this sort of very grand grand dame and she kind of walked out of the session. Having said, um, the one line was, and I can't remember who the name of his real father was, but so-and-so was your father. Yeah. Um, and that the sister knew. Sorry and to the give sister it away. Knew. I was just, it was a real, it's a real moment. You know, then there's it? betrayal, everything. One of the oh. things I loved about, there are a couple of things I, I loved that, that happened with, with your interaction with, with Ivo. And one was his description of when you're feeling desperate about something, whether you're feeling grief-stricken, betrayed. He said, it leaks into every corner of my being, leaving no centimetre of space for any other feeling, particularly not love or connection. And that's what it does, doesn't it? It isolates us. It sits us on an island of shame and distress. And if anyone listening is feeling overcome, what's the first step? Well, just to describe what that is physiologically, which I'm sure your listeners sort of know because everyone's talking about it, is that when you're really suffering, your whole body goes on to code red alert in fight, flight or freeze. And so your cortisol levels are very high and your neurofrontal, neofrontal cortex, which is the sort of connection, safety, love, oxytocin part of the brain, is completely offline. So it's like you have this armour which blocks you from connection with yourself and blocks you from connection to others because all you are wired to do is fight or flee or kind of freeze. And you get into this awful ruminating whirring of ah, and sort of screaming inside so the thing that you want to do is what I call circuit breakers things that stop you getting into the fourth gear and bring you down to lower gears so that you can feel safe in your body feel safe in your home in your kitchen around your table and actually receive a hug or ask for help because when you're on high alert like that you don't ask for help because it's like only I can survive. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is we all got into the habit of saying I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash mid-alt. Better help. 
Because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. You know, there's that wonderful African proverb, um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go long, go together. And that we need other people. So the thing I tell people to do is a combination of like, get outside, move your body. That, that tells your body you've flown. It like drops the cortisol levels, just that, even for 10 minutes. Do something intentionally soothing. You can do a breathing exercise for five minutes, make yourself a cup of tea. Things that you are in your toolkit that imbue you with the sense of safety. So mine is running, breathing and a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, then I, uh, for somebody else, it might be lighting a candle, it might be putting flowers on their kitchen table. Because then it, it expands my receptors that I can then say to someone, oh God, I'm so upset or furious or scared. And I can hear their response. Because when I'm in the fight or fright, what they say is I just, I kick it off. It's like, oh, nothing works. And then you, and that also you can get into a terrible cycle of that. So you need the circuit breakers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, as long as they're not hate sex and a bottle of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> you say to yes, well, yeah. anyway. Um, sex, sex one can te- work, by the way, and it can double down on the self hate. So it depends how you the intention with which you do it. But now, I think one of the things I really want to get across is. You know, like we're always moving in and out of being functional and dysfunctional. There's no such thing as a perfect family. And that being good enough, given the pressure that we're in, is really, really, really good. I think it's really interesting what you just said about the idea of we move in and out of kind of function and dysfunction. Because I think that's the biggest shock as a parent and also as a, as a child of as you grow older and as circumstances change. So, you know, for example, when you become a parent for the first time, you suddenly reevaluate your relationship with your parents automatically because you, exactly like you said, you want to discard or take in or you see that you behave in ways that are like them, even though you might not have wanted to. And then again, when your child reaches certain, uh, or children around you reach sort of stages that you remember as being traumatic for yourself, you again start reliving those experiences, don't you? So it's very reassuring to read the book because it, one, you cover all different shaped families. And again, you very cross-generational, intergenerational as well, because there is no one successful shape and it doesn't stay the same. And so, you know, we have to keep adapting and we have to keep, I don't want to say on alert because then that is sort of, but, you know, we have to be flexible in our thinking. Open. Open. (laughs) That's what they say. That's what we have to stay open. But it's true. It does. Just when you think you've got it right, it all goes, it all goes in another direction. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it's, you know, it gets better. And, And I think that's true. It's a reminder that we should bank the wins. When it goes well, it's okay to go, that was a good conversation. You know, or if there's a child, that was a good bedtime. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, that to, to go that granular yeah. with it because you know you because know. we are crippled by our own future proofing attempt to be like, if I can just do this, then in fifteen years' time we'll all be okay. Yeah, exactly. But also because I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything, and you know, this new crisis is that you know when our external circumstances change through no fault of our own, everybody responds differently, no matter how. So you've got... In unforeseen ways. Yes, exactly. So you, I'm sure we've got loads of listeners whose parents are behaving in one particular way that is so, like, 
against type and everybody's sitting there going, but why won't they go out or why won't they have us over or what? I mean, there's about a million different ways that things can play out. Ditto, you know, having young people in your life or whatever. Anyway. That's what I really, when you asked me the question, what did I hope from the book, is that that people will read the book and find for themselves, although the stories may be very different from their own, they will recognise themselves because the most personal is the most universal. So we need to be both self-compassionate and kind to ourselves. And also that we, you know, where we love most, we hate most and make our deepest mistakes. And one of the measures, actually, which I think is quite helpful, is if you think you've got a really... You can kind of feel the tension in your body and feel the tension in your family, is to kind of look at what you... Nothing is ideal, but you kind of count, have we had five positive interactions versus one negative? You sort of want to have more positive than negative. And so if you've been screaming at your kids for like five days and really only criticising them, that's quite a good like wake up. Like, OK, it's been I've been too negative. I've been screaming at them because I'm stressed out and frightened and I've had a horrible time and I hate my husband or I had a fight with somebody at work or whatever. And so that's quite a good just little click. Like, OK, so I need to kind of put that down, recognise that, acknowledge it say it and then make sure that we have a good family ritual that we have fun together we do something positive which builds the bonds in families and the memories that they can then trust that even when there are bad things then we go and have fun and that's what life is like is jumping in and out of the good and the bad isn't it it's never just all good or as annabelle you were saying all bad Will you just explain to our listeners a little bit, uh, you, you know, uh, your theory about codependency, how, wh- how it manifests and what it looks like and how we laugh about codependency, but actually how painful it can be? Well, codependency comes from childhood when you had a high maintenance family member. You see the price the family has to pay. And what you do to accommodate that is say, it's OK, I won't have needs. And more than that. I will contribute to the family system. So you end up being the good girl or the good boy and you end up doing things for other people as a way of feeling worthwhile and getting your needs met. So cut to being 20, 30, 40 years old, you are constantly trying to do things for people as a way of being validated. So first and foremost, when you're isolated, that reduces your pool of people to help. And second, when you're surrounded by family and you're doing that with them all the time, If you've got teenagers around, they're going to reject you because they're going to experience it as micromanaging. So you're going to feel hurt, rejected. You're going to feel that you're being painted into a corner. Why am I being called controlled? I'm just trying to help you do your prep. I just want to know what time you want to eat. And uh, the kids are saying... I don't care. I'll eat what I when I want. What does it matter? I'll sort my schooling out. Back off. And the codependent is redundant. So you're left with your own sense of being very depleted and you'll be very prone to withdrawing into a codependent sulk, which everybody feels is a bad mood, but it's actually you feeling useless, not needed, criticised, rejected, all of those things. And the people around you will say, why are you in such a bad mood? Which will just make it feel even worse. Then you feel shame. Yes, I think it's difficult. I think it's really painful. Um, My suggestion is, my immediate suggestion is, (gasps) 
deal with it. It's an opportunity. Codependency meetings through the 12-step fellowships are available online worldwide. So you can go to a meeting any hour, any day of the week, anywhere in the world, and you can sit in a room anonymously and listen to other people talking about precisely this dynamic. You can fracture your own personal isolation and start looking at, which would be a great thing to do, start looking at your own value and your own worth, irrespective of how you might be able to help somebody else. Stick yourself in the lineup and help you now. Such an opportunity because all the meetings are on Zoom. So you can access these resources worldwide at the moment. I mean, it's just, it, it is such an opportunity not to be missed. I mean, I do know a few people who are quietly exploring different and slightly unforetold um, avenues of, I mean, obviously we all hate this phrase, but I'm going to say personal growth. We call it another fucking growth opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, God, you know, you feel something and it's like, oh, there's another fucking growth opportunity. <laughs> it's all right, should... I'm fine. I'm just experiencing a growth opportunity. <laughs> I mean, I, I have things that I do that I love doing. Like I was saying earlier, I love singing and I have a microphone stand and a small amp. And sometimes after I finished doing sessions all day, I'll cook supper kids will go off to watch whatever it is they're going to watch or do whatever they're going to do and I disappear off for a couple of hours in my leopard coat and my microphone and my app happy as anything and I'm connecting to something I'm I'm not just a machine going through my day I think that's where people run into a problem is if you do what Em's saying which is if you dissociate you will flick into just being a machine and for me trouble follows at some point, if I deny my needs or I ignore them or I neglect them and I don't go looking for them and say, come on, Mandy, come and play with me. I can play with Mandy. So, Mandy, what do you want to do? If I don't do that, trouble will follow, whether it's me suddenly saying, oh, I can't be bothered or I just feel tired or whatever it is or just feeling angry or whatever. Um, I'd much rather do prevention over cure nowadays what would you say to people who are finding that they're getting quite compulsive so for example the daily walk um trying to get to your ten thousand steps has become getting obsessed with the steps and counting 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 and being unable to stop moving or you know it could be it could be something like you're drinking a little bit too much you're isolating too much if you if you can feel that what you're doing has slightly flipped into something from something pleasurable into something potentially punishing stop <laughs> I mean, it's it really is that simple. Stop, give yourself a period of abstinence and then start again. Reset. You know, I'm not going to say there are all these things you know, speculating about how much people are drinking nowadays and how much online shopping and online gambling has gone up. And, you know, is it creating a nation of addicts? I don't know. I wouldn't want to say. But what I would say is if you're uncomfortable with your behaviour, then you're hurting yourself. And that's what's important. And it gets harder and harder and harder to come back from that space. So the minute you notice it, you're better off stopping for something like a week, doing something else and then revisiting. So if, for example, you're walking 10,000 steps, 
try dancing, listen to music and try dancing whilst you're walking. So pavement dancing. What it does is it just confuses the the whole process because you're doing stuff on the spot. And what I'm what I suppose I'm saying is inject what you're doing with fun, with pleasure. Remember, you're here to enjoy it. Try to challenge the machine that's looking to switch off the automatic. I've finished work and now I go and have a glass of wine because that's what I do to switch off. Don't do that come out of work, go make a phone call, you know, walk around the block, do something else that puts you back in your skin so that the alcohol doesn't have the power to say, I'm your switch off button. So you you put it in its place. You're for fun, you're for exercise, you're for, you know, whatever it is, rather than letting these things perform an emotional function for you. Because the minute something is performing an emotional function for you, you have dependence. I love the idea of min of mini of mini resets though because yes. I think yeah. when we hear the word reset nowadays we think right when this is all over I'm going to study law or you know <laughs> <laughs> that we're suddenly going to you know going to profoundly alter everything but mini resets is much gentler and much more doable and also you know we are ritualistic creatures the whole day can become a ritual that in the end will give you less than it should I suppose if you're on if you're on autopilot and write a list of things and just pick one it's the same as i used to do i do this a lot with couples um who are trying to work out their their relationship when we get to a certain stage i ask both of them to write down six things privately and they send them to me six things you've always wanted to do with your partner and they have to be, you know, relatively uh, accessible things that you could do in the UK. It's not let's go scuba diving. Do they all say anal sex? <laughs> I was just thinking about <laughs> anal sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, when they match, it's great. Um, so I look at I look at their suggestions. And uh, and then I say, are you both prepared to, you know, engage or do you both, do you want to know what the other ones are? We can reveal them. But then you print them out, fold them up, put them in a pot. And when you have that moment, date night, time set aside, whatever it is, you put your hand in the pot and you pull one out and you do it no matter the weather. If it says golf for two hours and it's pissing with rain, you go and play golf and you are both in the same boat laughing at the fact that Mandy, your therapist, will you're more frightened of her <laughs> than you are of each other. So you go and play golf in the rain and you have an adventure and you get soaking wet. It isn't really golf, but it's funny. And also the person who hates golf realises that two hours of golf isn't the end of the world. Exactly. So you write down a whole load of things that you are prepared to do. You put them in a pot and you hand it over to higher power, as I would put it, or you hand it over to chance or whatever. And you say on those moments where I'm kicking around going, you know, I feel like going down the garden eating worms. I hate life. I hate this. I can't do this anymore. You put your hand in the pot and you do it. And if and I also think it's nicer to do it with someone. So you ring someone up and say, I'm going to put my hand in the pot. I really <laughs> hope it. I hope it doesn't say clean out the loft. I wish I hadn't put that in there. Oh, my God. Don't oh, it's fine. It it's fine. It was only anal sex. It's fine. <laughs> 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 I'm a grown up. It's fine. It doesn't take long. Absolutely. <laughs> what can I do to stop feeling this way? And what would happen if we could, you know, for a fuller life, if mm. we could convert that to what am I willing to feel in order to live the kind of life yeah. that I want to live? Annabelle, that is a key thing that I have come to realise. It's not about trying to get rid of it. It's what, I'm, what difficult feelings am I willing to make room for in order to live the life I want? And it, that 
It's so simple, but it's actually a really dramatic pivot in your life if you can do that, because it totally changes your relationship with your emotions. I am not, as you know, the job I do, I hear really, really awful stuff. I'm not about getting rid of feeling the humanity I feel for people, that you know, the kind of upset I feel for people. I'm not thinking about how do I get rid of that out myself. Actually, I'm thinking about how can I make room for that so I do the best job I can. And the same is true in all our relationships with people. Nothing is ever... I mean, who sold us this lie that I grew up with thinking it was all going to be easy? I feel very conned. But, you know, we will always have these difficult moments where we have to ask ourselves, what am I willing to make room for? Because it isn't just happy feels all the time. Oh, that it were... But actually, there's some really difficult emotions. Yeah, no, I think the happiness trap is actually a trap. It's like, all I want to do is be happy. Well, I mean, you know, you can't, and therefore you will spend your life, you know, hitting your head against a brick wall, metaphorically. Because propaganda, isn't there, that happiness is the natural yeah. human state. Yeah, yes. that we should. And if you're not happy, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and, and people do lean towards optimism and happiness and whatever you know generally you notice that now we're 47 you do you get you I think see what that happens but... though as you move through your 30s and 40s you stop you're rolling around in poetic misery and you think right I'm going to pull myself together <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to achieve this happiness because it's about time so then I think a lot what a lot of us do which you talk about in your book you call it the cage mm-hmm. which is change avoid get rid eliminate and that's not about feeling more that's about blocking things out right absolutely yeah and that i think is i think you used a beach ball in a swimming pool. yeah so this kind of yes. idea that you can you know if, if you're in a in a pool and you've got a, a beach ball and you're pushing it under the water you have to expend a lot of energy to keep it there and whilst you're doing that you are not at the beach cabana with your friends having cocktails you're just trying to get rid of all this stuff and the second you you kind of let go of it it kind of bursts forth into your breaks face breaks your nose breaks your nose as i say you know you, you pretend you meant it to do that anyway and you were just larking about in the pool being cool but actually what if instead it just floated about with you in your pool and you got on with other stuff like working on your tan or whatever is important at that moment i mean really you know i I suppose you know one of the big messages is and but you you do this very gently and you give us tools is feel your feelings Mm. if you can feel your feelings then you know everything will be more manageable yeah and i think that this is something we just don't learn to do certainly of our generation because um, we think there's something wrong with us who are feeling sad or ashamed or incredibly totally. anxious. Particularly if nothing that bad is happening. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, completely right. And we never learn that actually these are all normal things. Oh, my God, if I could go back and tell myself some stuff when I was a teenager, wouldn't you go back and say, it's normal to feel like this? It's normal to feel really upset if there's rejection or difficulty this is how your body responds. This is how your mind responds. You, there's nothing wrong with you. You are a normal human being who feels emotions. But you're absolutely right, Annabelle, in the sense that we don't learn about these things. And we think it should all be positive. Right. And that's incredibly unhelpful in the long run. But also, I suppose what we have to understand is that thoughts are not feelings and feelings are not thoughts. Because if we want to make room for the painful feelings, we don't need to accommodate the painful thoughts in the same way. Is that correct? Yes. So it's a question of learning, I suppose, to make thought, make room for those difficult feelings. So kind of 
and imagery is really nice here this idea that you can kind of expand around it you can make room for everything you feel I really like this idea of if you think of yourself as the sky right you're that constant and the weather is your emotions and sometimes the weather is a tornado and sometimes the weather is beautiful and sometimes it's a bit rainy but you can make room for all of that and it all changes no feeling and is also final. the weather never hurts the sky does it and the weather can't hurt the sky the it can be the worst storm there's a part of you that can accommodate all of that i find that also really liberating so that's one thing about about feelings and the idea behind thoughts is you can diffuse and stand back from that thoughts and see whether buying into a thought is useful for you or not and by useful i mean does it help you live a life in line with your values if i buy into i'm a bad mother or i'm a failure or i'm so fat and awful or whatever it is does that help me live the kind of life I want to live? Is that helping me be the kind of person I want to be? Whether it's true or not, that's the other thing. Doesn't matter whether those thoughts are true or not. We're not about that in this work. We're about trying to stand back and then do the useful thing. Whatever that might be. I, I like I like this exercise when you talk about letting the thoughts really sink letting the judgment that the thought is uh, stimulating really really sink its fangs into you. And and then getting to the point where you're saying Okay, so I am a fraud. I'm having the thought that I'm yeah. a fraud. I am noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm a fraud through little steps yeah. that you guide us through, which just creates some distance some, so you can breathe yeah, again. Yeah, and, you know, if someone is listening to, to this now and this on their way to work, you can try and get a really a really harsh self-judgment into your mind. So it might be, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm a bad mum, I'm a, you know, I'm I'm not doing what I should be doing in life. Really letting it... All the really old-fashioned woman-y stuff. I'm fat, I'm, fat, I'm ugly. I'm ugly, you know... Um, I have a beard. I have a beard, <laughs> all of which might be true. Um, but, you know, that kind of judgment about yourself. Really let it sink into you, really bring it up in your mind for a few seconds and then you know I, I'm, a, I'm a failure is my my big one I don't care how many books I publish or whatever it looks like I will I'll believe that at times I will really buy into that and objectively you could say that I've done things and, and I'm not a failure but I know my mind will come up with that so I'm a failure so when I notice that thought or if you're listening you know while we're doing this then bring up that thought but it, now take a, a different tack and just say I'm noticing I'm having a thought, I'm a failure. Yeah. That's just the distance you get. I'm just noticing there's a thought there. I'm a failure. And immediately you've got a bit of distance between yourself and that thought. What does it feel like when you have a bit of space? Feels to me like you can breathe a little bit. And when you've got that space, oh my word, you can do something so much more useful with yourself than buying into that. Flourishing. Flourishing, in, yeah, absolutely. Flourishing in the present, which leads me to the fact that the <laughs> present is a very tricky we were, situation. We were discussing this this morning because this is one of the things we both highlighted. <laughs> I mean, yes, we both we both looked at the was it the, was it a Harvard Business School study? I'm not no. sure. It was it was a, it was yes. a very authoritative study that said 40 percent of us are generally worrying about things that are not happening now, haven't happened, have already happened, or yeah. will never happen. Yeah. So it's it's hard to understand how to just be here. And also, so that we're is, told meditation, 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 but yeah. really, 
well, so, well, what I would say about that is, so that might have well have been written about me. I'm nearly always worrying about something that might happen, some event that has happened. You know, it, I, it's a struggle for me. And I just want to, and the reason I, I, I'm open about that is I think lots of people think, oh, well, you know, she's a psychologist. She's not, you know, she doesn't feel those things. Well, You're the I'm, maddest of the lots. I'm completely <laughs> off my nuts. Yes, you know, and oh my gosh, you know, I am struggling like you're struggling. So meditation, I would draw a distinction, Annabelle, between meditation and mindfulness. And so mindfulness does really help. But it's a shame it's been so sort of, it's been sort of put on oh, so much soap, isn't it? I know. And it's really, un- yes, it is. But there are ways of being mindful. And, and you could just say, I'm just training myself to be in the present moment. You don't have to get up at five o'clock and make time for yourself and sit on a rock and look if you want to do that yes if you get up at five o'clock and make make time for yourself you're losing crucial panicking time (laughs) i mean when are you going to find time to catastrophize if not that's your slot that's that's my slot yeah you know and, and you know or i'm just going to lie in bed and think about oh i've got two hours before i've got to get up you know I am not getting up at five o'clock for anyone. So um, mindfulness, though, if you just reframe it as a way of being in the present moment and just noticing the present moment as it is, there are lots of exercises in the book that are things you can do on the go, right? You can do mindfulness in the queue, uh, you know, at a taxi rank. You can do mindfulness on the tube. You can do mindfulness at the school gate. There are ways of doing it on the go and that don't have to be an enormous commitment but what you're doing is gradually training that in yourself that's it's really a brilliant helpful. way to shut down a conversation you know to see, you would make the part of the party I'm, say, I'm sorry i'm, I'm just practicing I'm, my I'm mindfulness just doing some mindfulness yes. but i think no one will ever speak that, to no, you again. Well, yes exactly there you go win 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 but i think the other thing that's that's such a kind of a false advertising for like meditation and mindfulness is the idea that you have to empty your head and yes. that is why people 100%. are so immediately yeah. defeated by yeah. it and it's not yeah. about that at all it is literally about saying i am noticing the trees i'm noticing this i'm noticing myself thinking about the trees it is that's what yes. it is isn't can it can you it's, give us a little beginners yes, go on, go on, go on. exercise that doesn't feel like a and now f- empty your brain and then everyone starts to cry okay a simple one i like for focus is so i when i you might find this helpful as writers i sitting about writing and I begin to think about the fact that uh, my agent will be cross with me soon. What I say to the publishers haven't done anything. Oh my God, that window's so filthy. Shall I go and clean it? Uh, oh, I'm a bit hungry actually now. Oh, what shall I eat? Uh, I don't know if that speaks to you at all. Um, so I find some problems with concentration and focus. So mindfulness can be very good about coming back to that moment. So one thing I find really helpful, I really like, is it's called 54321. I'm doing the movements with my hands badly. <laughs> um, so you just start by telling yourself five things I can see around me. And I name them in my head. I don't go, oh, I can see five things. I say, I can see the lamp. I can see the pen on my book. I can see a glass of water. Then um, four things I can hear. Three things I can smell. Uh, two things I can touch and one thing I can taste, right? And just, you can do that anywhere, right? And it can just bring you back to the present moment. And I find that quite helpful when I'm in a massive spiral of rumination 
as is my main hobby. Um, And it just brings me back and sort of takes me out of my head for a little bit. And I I find that really helpful. So that is a mindfulness. It doesn't have to be. You might not like breathing. You know, some people love it, some people don't. So I've tried to give different ways of of using mindfulness. You can mindfully listen to music. You can mindfully eat. You can do it for 30 seconds. It doesn't have to be a great commitment. The main thing is you just start bringing a little bit of this into your life and it will grow from there. And you're absolutely right, Emily. I think the key thing is it's not about, oh my God, no wonder people give up. You can't empty your mind. That's not how minds work. It doesn't speak to what the how we're built. And the other thing, it's not about relaxation. Like people always yeah. think, oh, you know, I'll do some other But I didn't feel relaxed at the end. You may not. It's not about mm-hmm. that. It's about just bringing your attention to what is here now and thinking, noticing it as it is. And then that, from that place, you can think about doing something more useful that's in line with your values. Ah. Mm. <sighs> And I think, you know, the idea of mindfulness and some some finding a way to mindfully show yourself a bit of compassion because we yeah. beat the shit out of ourselves. Yeah. It's potentially really transformative in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work, in terms of, uh, you know, just opening some doors for yourself. Because certainly me, with, with my anxiety, I find myself, I've backed myself into a corner and it's really mm. cold and it's very dark and it's very scary. Mm. And everything is telling me that I can't get out. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, a lot of this is about puffing some air through the micro trauma that we just deliver to ourselves, even if we are, you know, completely, you know, lucky enough to be sitting here in a house with a leaking kitchen rather than in some terrible situation. Yeah. And I, I also really like the idea that we sort of to take rest seriously, like. The, there's a brilliant anecdote, well, not anecdote, because obviously you didn't actually interview an antelope, but you were talking about what mm. happens she to a world. Well, how, how do you know? know? Don't okay, judge right, my journalism I'm making that assumption. But the idea that, you know, an, an antelope that's just been attacked by a lion goes to the watering hole and kind of, you know, takes a pause, thinks, oh, my God, whatever, but doesn't then immediately kind of turn to the next antelope next to it and go, oh, my God, did you see that? I can't believe it. Do you think the lion's going to come back? Like, you know, it's a sort of, you know... Or, does do the you, lion think I'm a dick? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or did the lion not like what I was wearing? What's the deal? Yeah. Or, because the lion thinks I'm fat. I mean, you know, it's like a sort of endless cycle. The, the antelope is very focused on, you know, resting after, you know... A, a trauma. A, a, a trauma. And, you know, I'm I'm not saying we're sort of you know, dealing with trauma all the time. But the idea that, you know, the idea that we do not allow ourselves to rest, that we do not allow ourselves the idea of space and breathing, that we do not allow ourselves to feel all our feelings, you know, of course it's going to create this sort of awful, vicious bottleneck. But it's funny, isn't it, the idea that you can, if you feel all the difficult feelings, what you're potentially going to end up with is some peace. Yes. You know, if if you listen to the noise, you could end up with some quiet. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.